It is Tuesday, March 3rd, 2020. And coming up, we have a remarkable sit-down with Jack Curry of the Yes Network. And I feel like pigeonholing him as a baseball guy isn't exactly fair. We touch on everything. You won't want to miss it. Stay right there. This is The Tune-Up. Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur. And if he was half as good at banging on garbage cans as he is on drums, he'd probably have a major league career. It's Benny Horowitz. <laughs> that was good. That was good. On the fly. You're a poet. What's up, dude? How's it going? It's March. It's March. I love it. Bring it in. Can I tell you something funny about our guest today? Yeah, let's do it. So Jack Curry, by the way, joining us. We have the wonderful Jack Curry coming on, who's a great guy. I really appreciate him coming on. And do you know, Denny, the reason I have a Twitter account is because of Jack Curry. Oh, wow. Played a show in New York City many, many years ago. I'd always been fairly anti-social media and being public about this stuff. I just don't like it that much. And played a show. I believe it was maybe when Gaslight did our Terminal 5 shows, which would be like... Like 2012, right? 2012. That sounds about right. And... Uh, we had a monitor guy named Anthony Shushtak, or Marv, big baseball fan, big Yankees fan, great guy, lives in Queens. And uh, Marvin tells me after the show, he's like, hey, my sister just hit me up. Jack Curry's at the show tweeting that he's here. And I'm like, oh. you know, I don't get starstruck often. You could have literally told me like, hey, uh, you know, Jason Kidd's down in the VIP. You want to say hi? And I'd be like, sure. Yeah. You know, like, like. It scares me a little, you know, but I'll say hi. Like, you could say, like, oh, Bono's up in the balcony, you know? He wants to say hi. I'd be like, strange, but I guess I'll meet Bono. I heard someone like Jack Curry, and I'm like, that's like my world. It's so cool. So literally, like, immediately after the show, went home, figured out how to download Twitter on my phone, and the first thing I did was hit up Jack Curry and just be like, hey, I'm a big fan of yours. Glad you were at the show, and you're a fan of the band. And and that's that's how we connected. Oh man. Isn't that funny? Two guys with remarkably great hair, you know, it was meant to be. <laughs> if only I had met him in 2010 and I'd just be Benny Horowitz, not Benny Horowitz one. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but so. then you wouldn't be number one in your minds, number one in our hearts. So but yeah, everything this, happened for a reason. But yeah, this is great. It's a great time to talk to Jack. Baseball gearing up, spring training, cheaters, Yankees. Music. And music and the history of uh uh his his career and how it came up and the some history about new york music i I thought it was a great interview so we're not gonna waste your time so without any further ado here is the man the myth the legend himself jack curry all right we are now joined by a man who needs no introduction but for the sake of this pod we'll give it anyway he is a new york times bestselling writer but you best know him from his yes broadcasting career it is jack curry the pride of jersey city hey jack how's it going today oh benny i love that you threw some jersey city love in there we uh we we share our love for that city so i appreciate that and thanks to you and denny for having me on i mean i tried to w the mayor of jersey city on twitter and and i even added the mayor of jersey city stephen fullop in it being like hey you know this guy's from jersey city right and then I was trying to get a plaque going or something. It didn't get as much traction as I thought. You might have to get the Yankees' weight behind this, Jack, if we're going to get you a, a plaque or a statue in, in Jersey City. I'll go for the plaque or the statue. 
Uh, Mr. Fulop can have the, the mayor's job. I am, I am happy <laughs> in my current position. Uh, as much as I love my, my hometown, I don't think I would want to take that on. I like being able to go to work every day and talk about baseball. Yeah, yeah, that sounds nice. <laughs> um, it was, I, was, I was looking up, and, you know, I didn't realize until we were doing a little research into this the, that you uh, basically have worked for every major uh, editorial institution I've loved by growing up in New Jersey, being the Jersey Journal, the Newark Star-Ledger, the New York Times. You even covered the Nets in the 80s? I did. I covered the Nets during uh, Derek Coleman's rookie year. So I think it was ninety ninety one. And the joke I often make is that I, I interviewed Derek Coleman's back for about 80 games that year because <laughs> Derek had this habit of he would do the interviews, but he just didn't really feel like turning around and or interrupting his, his dressing at that moment, what he was doing. But I actually got along with him fairly well uh, on a really bad team. I think they were 15 and 67 or 17 and 65, something like that. Coleman was the story. So on, on a lot of nights that that's who we were writing about. That's who we were talking about. And wow, you, you dug up my Jersey journal days. That was a lot of little league baseball. I, I always tell kids who want to get into this now and, and think that you're going to go from college right to covering the Yankees. I always remind them that I, I probably covered about 100 Little League games a summer when I was in college, hoping one day to get to cover one game at Yankee Stadium. Now, you always hear reporters who uh, covered a little bit of hard news. You were nominated for your public service reporting. What did you learn about how to get the story right during that time in your career? One of the good things, Benny, about working at the New York Times when I did, and, and I must admit I kind of fought it then, when I started out at the Times, I was in the sports department, but they wanted you to have experience in other areas. So as you said, they, they took me out of sports for nine months during my stint and made me cover news. Huh. And I kicked and screamed. I didn't want to do it, and I didn't have a choice. I, that, that's, that was the plan for me. And so I covered an uprising at Rikers Island. I, I covered the Zodiac oh. killer oh. who was a, a repeat of the West Coast killer. This guy was killing people based on their birthday or shooting yeah. them shooting them in new york i covered one of the one of the most gut-wrenching things i ever covered where there was a some tourist from i'll never forget this from utah brian watkins was the kid's name and he and his parents were going to the u.s open and they were taking uh taking the subway and somebody tried to rob his mother and he got in front and he got stabbed and he got killed and Jeez. here i am standing outside the police precinct trying to interview his parents as they come into uh basically look at a lineup. And I remember thinking to myself, I know this needs to be covered. I know this is important. I know this is far more important than runs, hits, and errors, but this, this is not my world. I mean, I went home for, for, for days. I could to this day, I mean, I just, I just gave sure. you the, the scene and the name again. Yeah. I, I could not get that image out of my mind. So, but that being said, in answer to your question, Benny, I think it absolutely made me a better, a better sports writer, more aware of, of where to get information. I, I think you have to know when a story breaks, you have to know where where to turn. And sometimes the the sources aren't standing right in front of you. It's one thing mm. if Derek Jeter makes an error and he's standing besides his locker after the game. Sure. Well, what if there's a shooting at Yankee Stadium? What if there's an accident at Yankee Stadium? What if a, a piece of metal falls? You have to know who to call. You have to know where to go to get that information, especially back in the 80s and 90s where it wasn't as easy to just pick up your phone and Google something. So... I think that's what that experience taught me.
Yeah, that's interesting. I know we've talked about that in the past, Jack, how one of the attractions to sports is the idea that that you can have a clear-cut winner and a loser. There's not as much gray area uh, as there exists in the real world. Uh, so for for fans and journalists and the like, I think it provides like a, a place that a lot of people need a way, you know, a way. So it does provide a service, you know, I, I it, can uh, to, to talk to you about that. I, I just think sports can be a sanctuary for so many people so often. And I, I go right back to nine 11 and I just remember how, how excited people were to have something else to focus on. And I know I just picked the greatest tragedy in, in our history, but I want to embellish the point that you're making that sports is where you can go to hide sometimes. And it might only be for three hours. It might only take your mind off it for a brief period of time. But it it is a place that becomes an oasis for so many people, myself included. And I get the chance to to talk about a baseball game that I just watched. Uh, As a kid growing up in Jersey City, if you told me that's where I was headed, I would have been pretty excited. Jack, I want to bring it back to baseball at Jays. When I worked in Milwaukee, I worked with Drew Olson, and he always talked about you know the best cities on the circuit. Uh, he brought up Montreal when the Expos were there. In your time, what have been some of your favorite stops that Major League Baseball has been in? First of all, I like Drew. Drew and I go way back. He's a good dude. I want to say that Drew and I were both at a Jack McDowell stick figure concert when jack mcdowell had his band yeah yeah in milwaukee and, and help me out here denny what's this hole in the wall place where they would have been playing something oh. with an s oh my gosh it's a uh, shanks it's, or shacks yeah or? yeah shanks because that that's a place where springsteen had that crazy show that got shut down by the police was this yes. in shanks in milwaukee huh this one i don't something know like that. more than you know yeah don't know jack mcdowell's one. band was good by the way they were kind of rem light but uh, wow. anyway I'm a. I love Boston. I have to say, I love cities that there there there's so much life. You don't need a taxi. You can just walk to everything. Mm. I'm a big fan of Toronto. Yeah. And then selfishly, when the Yankees, when I was a sports writer, especially, I'm I'm kind of a studio guy now, mostly with yes, so I don't travel as much. Going to the West Coast when you were a, a print journalist, there was something very cool about that because the games were starting so late. You would write a sterly story for the early edition, and then you kind of had a break, which which you don't often get in in this business. If if you got your early story done early, say you woke up West Coast time nine o'clock, ten o'clock in the morning, filed that story by eleven, you you were free for the next seven or eight hours until the game started, and there was hmm. something uh, there was something kind of neat and free about that in, in a in a year where you knew you were going to cover one hundred and thirty games plus. And it's awesome to talk to a baseball guy because, correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't J.G. Mellon a big hangout in the city when baseball writers would come to town, they would congregate there? And has the internet kind of taken the intimacy of that kind of community away? That's a great question. Yes to your first question. And I think the internet has has helped it and hurt it. When I was in Tampa this most recent go-around with the Yankees, I ended up talking to a few college journalists and Here's what they have going for them. The fact that they can find Michael Kay. They, they can find Meredith mm, Morakovich. They can right. find Jack Curry. And if a lot of times, if they're, if they're polite and it's a, a legitimate question, I, I will respond. Sure. When I was growing up, I, I would send a letter to Dave Anderson of the New York Times and, <laughs> right. and hope that he would respond. Yeah, yeah. So I think that it has created some in- intimacy in that way that people can reach out and find you. But, but I also understand what you're saying 
about maybe having a local hangout or maybe having a people that you could a place that you could go and hide away. I'm not sure if that exists. Perhaps Foley's. I'm not mm. sure if you've been to Foley's in Manhattan, but that's a very popular place for uh, sports writers, umpires, uh, scouts, right near Madison Square Garden. A lot of people congregate there. And if you go, he'll, uh, Sean, the proprietor, will probably ask you to sign a baseball because he must have <laughs> over a thousand signed baseballs in that place. And I will proudly say I am in that group. That's awesome. I love that. Uh, I, I want to bring it back to music a little in Jersey City. So, so when you, uh, you know, you're 55 now, correct? Yes, I am. So you were, you know, living in Jersey City, you know, New York adjacent in the late 70s, early 80s uh, as a teenager. Did you yes. immerse yourself in what was going on in the New York City area with music at that point? Or did you know what was going on over the river and, and get to any shows at that time? Immerse would be too strong a word, Benny. Did I did I dabble in it? Did I go to the CBGBs of the world and places like that? Absolutely. I I had the good fortune that my brother, uh, who you've met, yeah, a couple yeah. years older met than him me, in Chicago. Yeah. I his music interests became my music interests. Right. So on any given day, when my brother would be listening to the the Clash or the Jam or Elvis Costello, here I would be the eleven or twelve year old saying, "What's that? What's that?" Or here's the Violent Femmes. Uh, Here's New Order. Here's Joy Division. And, of course, there was a lot of Springsteen on rotation, too. We, we were Jersey kids. There, sure. there was a lot of heavy Springsteen. But one of my favorite concerts ever, and I, I ended up going twice, was um, in 1981. I was 16, and The Clash had a seven-day run at Bond's Disco. It's still there. It's a restaurant now. Wow. Where is it? Where's Bond's Disco? The, it's 45th Street, right near Times Square. Gotcha. And they oversold the uh, the concerts. So here's how cool the Clash was. I mean, this is total punk rock. Yeah. They just said, "Okay, we'll do seven more shows." Uh, we'll <laughs> wow! Just just split up the tickets, and so they did 14 shows in a row. And I got the chance to see two of them. So in terms of immersing yourself, one of my all time, uh, it, it kind of both is great and stinks that one of my great musical experiences when I was 16. But my brother and I climbed onto. The, the stage after the clash finished one of those shows. Uh -huh. Now we were summarily pushed off very quickly, sure. but to know that I kind of got on the stage 30 seconds after Joe Strummer and Mick Jones had just finished playing, as you can hear the passion in my voice, that was, that was a pretty great experience. You shared a stage with Joe Strummer. Jack That's Hart. right. You That's shared, right. You officially shared a stage. So we were having some fun on text the other day where I was trying to compare uh, musician and player comps. Which, which I do often. I, I always viewed myself as a bit of a catcher. Just, you know, the guy who's, you know, kind of behind the scenes, uh, directing the show a little bit, kind of has the ugliest job, but maybe the most responsibility, you know? Um, but the, the comp I came up for my musical career the other day was a Nick Marcakis, you know, an all-star a couple times, good fielder, good clubhouse guy, but a bit of a compiler, you know what I mean? Who just puts up even stats over the years. Uh, now, if you were given these three people, okay, I would like a musical comp for Derek Jeter, and then I'd like a baseball comp for Joe Strummer and Jimmy Cliff. Oh, my gosh. You really are putting me on the spot here. These... Well, I'll answer this by saying, first of all, I, I loved our text exchange. And, Denny, I kept telling him to go to uh, Nate Silver of uh, 538. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I said, let him 
let him figure it out. Get some college kid to come and see how many times Benny just uh, banged away at the drum in that one song. And yeah. they're probably, I would not be surprised if someday there, there is some sort of analytics for music. We're going to get but there, man, Jack. You, <laughs> We're gonna you get just, there. I'm, I'm stalling for time here. You just really, you just, you just upended me with that. All right, let's Let start with see. one. Let's say, let's say, let's Joe go with Strum. Cheater. So, All right, yeah, so with Jeter. Cheater, you're, you're absolutely, you need to pick somebody who was at the, at the top of his profession, somebody who was consistent, somebody who was beloved. I know he wasn't beloved in Boston. Sure. Man, but he is now. That, that is really, really tough. Wow. I mean, can I can I stay in Jersey since he was born in Jersey? Can I throw Springsteen out there? I'm going to go Springsteen. I mean, that yeah, it feels pretty safe to me. You got to find a, a, a generational one, someone who's who's made uh, many entrances to the mainstream and been able to get back. No, I think that's a fair a fair comparison. Even though what Jeter is Pequonic and uh, Springsteen's down there in South Jersey, but that's a good one. What would Jeter's buying the Mar or what would Springsteen's buying the Marlins be then? <laughs> that would be a that would be a big a, a pretty big headline. So what about uh what do you think about Strummer? I've never this is what's great about this question is as much as you know cuz I talk about the clash, I tweet about them. I've got I've got a picture of Joe. Here's what I have in my office right now as I'm talking to you. Very little baseball stuff. I've got a picture of Johnny Cash, a picture of Joe Strummer and a uh a a Bob Marley uh, saying on the wall uh, from Three Little Birds. And then there's a couple of baseball things. So it's great that I never thought about this. I I should have thought about this previously. So for Joe Strummer, to me, Benny and Denny, it would have to be somebody who was was underrated, somebody Mm -hmm. who people, when they think about the best of the best, they they don't often put his name in there. Because to me, he's he's a very pivotal figure in music history. You know you what might I'm going to do? Yeah, I'm, you might I'm have had a just, short career too, right? Like a short-lived yes. career. Yeah. So here's the only thing that is going to take away from the short career part because this guy had a long career, but he's a friend of mine, and we collaborated on a book together. I'm going huh? to go David Cohn. Oh, high praise. Yeah. Consistency, praise. Re- relentless, competitive, a guy who gave everything he wanted on any, any given night. And I actually think in some ways underrated. When Mike Messina was elected to the Hall of Fame and I voted for him, I received multiple texts from people who said to me, I'd take Cone over Messina. Wow, if I had to win really? one game, I'd take Cone over Messina. So uh-huh. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna make David Cone my Joe Strummer. I like that. I think first one that popped in my head, it's a little morbid, but was like a Clemente. Mm, yeah. You know, someone who came like in yeah. made a really strong impact for a short period of time and then left a very lasting legacy after them, especially in that, a in a cultural kind of way. That's a uh, that's a terrific that's a terrific call. Uh Clemente did get three thousand hits though too, so he was oh, yeah. he, he did he did stick around long enough to do that. That well, I won't hey, com- you know I won't cop I him the steal- Donnie baseball. And that's, that's- I may steal your Clemente for Jimmy Cliff. I'm oh, because I'm thinking of a yeah. guy who had an impact. And if you want to talk about that, you just gave me my Jimmy Cliff. I'm going Roberto Clemente. I love that. <laughs> um, so you're in the clubhouse a lot, obviously. Uh, what what's like the most common brand of uh clubhouse music these days? Like like I, I'm sure I'm sure earbuds have, have made this a little bit more of a mystery than it was in the past. But uh 
what's the most common uh, clubhouse music coming out now? And also, how, how has it changed since you started covering baseball? Like, is is music a bigger part, a smaller part? Are, are, um, are sports uh, people, you know, more open to talking about music or less? You're, you're right about the earbuds, although there still is a clubhouse is a is a a celebratory place. It's, sure. it's, it's their boys club. So even if certain guys have the earbuds and want to do their own thing, there's always going to be somebody who controls the music with the Yankees. Most of the time it's judge. Okay. Uh, hip hop is the, is the choice. Most of the time, I would say three quarters of the time. You hear a lot of Drake. You hear a lot of Kendrick Lamar. You hear a lot of Kanye. Okay. I was, um, I was pleasantly surprised the first day judge showed up for spring training and he walked over and I think he, I don't know if it was Pandora or Spotify. I forget what, uh, what medium he chose, but he popped on the, uh, the music in the clubhouse and he played, I'll be around by the spinners. Oh, and I thought surprise. that is really cool. And he walked away kind of nodding his head to, to a couple of reporters as if to say, this is this is pretty good. I'm, I'm glad I chose this. And I don't know if he did it intentionally because he had a shoulder injury. And I don't know if he's saying, I'll be around. I'm going to be back. I think it was unintentional. <laughs> but I thought that was pretty cool to uh, start the spring off with. Maybe a little tip of the hat to... Uh... To you, you know, to your to your ilk in the clubhouse, perhaps, yeah. perhaps, <laughs> perhaps that was what it was. Now, one of the underrated stories of the Yankee off season is who was going to take CC Sabathia's locker. The it, it ended up being Araldis Chapman. Do you have any sort of insight into this story? Because I honestly think it was probably the most important story of the Yankee off season. Garrett Cole, yeah, but I mean the music in the locker room and who gets to pick it. So, kind of take us inside that decision and how Chapman won the day. Yeah. Remember Danny pitchers and catchers show up first. So oh, I'm, I told right. you, I told you judge was choosing the music <laughs> on that given day. Previously it was a role Chapman okay. and he wasn't messing around with uh, the, the above clubhouse system with, with the speakers that are built into the ceiling. He had his own massive speaker tucked into <laughs> the locker that he inherited, as you said, from CC Sabathia and, uh, he, he was playing some uh, Latin flair. I had to do the Shazam to try and see what some of the songs were. I, I, I did not know the music. That's not really my genre. Those decisions, believe it or not, who gets which locker, usually decided by the clubhouse attendant. A Brian Cashman or an Aaron Boone, they're not necessarily going to get involved in that. If there's a young player that they think will benefit from having a locker near a veteran, you'll sometimes see them do that. A lot of the time, it's seniority. Chapman's a guy who's been around and has been around with the Yankees. So to give him CeCe's corner locker, I, I think that was a sign of respect. They, they gave Cole, uh, he, he's in a good neighborhood too, but Cole is, he's near Hap. Mm. He's near Montgomery. He, mm. He's near Severino and Tanaka. I think they wanted all those starting pitchers in a cluster over there. And so I, I think that's why... Chapman got that locker in spring. Now, does he get it at Yankee Stadium? That's a question we'll know on uh, when the season opens, or I guess I could ask the clubhouse attendant when I go back <laughs> down to Tampa. But I would assume if he got it in spring training, he's probably getting it during the season too. And what's the uh, you know what's the general feeling around Cole that you're getting the first couple weeks? I mean, does <clears> he <throat> seem to be one of those guys who you know is uh, 
gregarious? Is he understated? Are people drawn to him? Do you think he has like the potential to be uh, like a leader in the clubhouse? I, I do. I think people have been endlessly impressed with him. And I just don't mean reporters or team executives, his own teammates. He is not in that clubhouse to mess around. I have watched a thousand pitchers throw bullpen sessions. Yeah. And they're usually very methodical. You throw your 20 or your 25 pitches and you, you wrap it up for the day and then you'll do it again in two days. Mm. Cole treats those bullpen sessions as if it's a midseason game at Fenway Park. Wow. He's very meticulous. There's a lot of communication between him and the catcher. I wrote about this on yesnetwork.com. There was one bullpen session that I watched. He threw 25 pitches. I'm sorry, 30 pitches, 15 from the stretch and 15 wind up. When he was done, I felt like he had yanked two pitches. There were a couple of wayward pitches. You could just see in his body language. Yeah. The first thing he did as he met halfway with Sanchez was talk about why those two pitches didn't go where he wanted uh, them to go. All right. I mean, think about the perfectionist in you sure. after a very basic bullpen session. So you yanked one fastball and and one changeup came out of your hand the wrong way. That's right. what he wanted Sanchez to know. Wow. So I think as much as his reputation precedes him, guys, I think the fact that he is just so much of a technician and so involved in everything that he does, he is going to have a big impact on those other pitchers. Well, Danny's told me to not be a homer on this show before, but that's he's <laughs> very learning. exciting, he's Jack. Very exciting. <laughs> oh, I got I got a quick great story to tell you, and it'll give me a chance to promote uh, this. Okay. So I'm flying back down to Tampa on Saturday. Going to watch Cole pitch on Saturday, and then on Sunday, me, Cole, and David Cohn, my colleague slash co-author. We're going to have a little, I call it a sit-down, but it's not going to be a sit-down. We're going to stand near one of the mounds at Steinbrenner Field, and we're going to just talk pitching. And we're going to oh, go wow. as long as, as they're willing to go. We're just going to dig into their, their pitching minds, what they think about similarly, what they think about differently. Cole has already started. I gave him a copy of our book, and Cole has already started to read it, and he wow. said he's just He's just amazed with uh, David's creativity and how David is somebody who he'd figure out a way. He, no matter what was going on on the mound, he was going to figure out a way to get you out. And Cole wants to pick his brain about that. I love this, Jack. You're a, you're a GD power broker these days. <laughs> so I got. I, I'm, I, trust me, I'm go, I'm going to. You talked. Uh, Denny was just talking about hiding your fandom. Yeah. That's going to be hard for me with these two right. pitching sure. brains. Yeah, yeah. To not be overly enthusiastic about. Tell me more. I, I need to know right. more. Well, why do you throw the slider then? How did you develop that pitch that way? So yeah. it, it should be interesting. Play it cool, man. Play it cool. Yes. <laughs> so I have to bring up Yankee pitching with you. Many people were thinking Severino, Cole, one-two punch. News comes out that Severino done for the season with the Tommy John surgery. What are you expecting going forward? You can't sugarcoat the loss of right. Luis Severino. I had watched him a couple of days this spring, and I actually was predicting on our airwaves or slash our internet. I guess we did a couple of internet shows, and I thought he was going to have a big season. I, I thought that he looked he looked ready to go. I think he felt disappointed that he lost so much time last year. And then as soon as they brought up the forearm soreness and it was hurting him on his changeup, I just had a bad feeling because. The guy did not pitch much last year, 20 innings if you count the postseason, had all the offseason to heal. 
and yet had two MRIs and a CT scan, and now he's still feeling this. So you can't sugarcoat that. That's a big loss. You now, you now have to lean on this. Paxton, they hope, could be back by May. Herman, after he serves the remaining time on his suspension, which is 60-something games, you could get him by June. So until then, you, you have to sustain with Tanaka as your number two. Suddenly, Hap, a guy whose name was mentioned prominently in trades, he becomes a bigger deal. Right. Jordan Montgomery, who maybe at the start of the spring, you're, you're wondering, is he your five? Is he going to be ready for Tommy John? He's now your four. And then I think this is where it gets interesting. Who, yeah. Who's your number five starter? Can one of these younger guys that they've talked about so long, some who we've seen, some who we've not seen, can one of them assert himself? Loisaga could be a candidate there. Two guys that I'm very interested in seeing, Michael King, yeah. who has a, a Greg Maddox-like two-seamer, and then Clark Schmidt, a former first-round pick. He had Tommy John surgery. I've talked to some scouts who have just talked about he's got a four-pitch mix, uh, could absolutely be somebody who ends up being a strong starter in the major league. So, yeah, Denny, they're going to have to rely on their depth, just like last year. They're going to need some guys who maybe you didn't expect to be as big a contributor. They're going to need to contribute. Now, what do you think is like the ideal situation for them? Because I'd imagine, you know, if if Sessa or Loisaga slid into one of these fist spots, they'd be under uh, some innings restrictions and things like that, like, you know, going through the season. So, so if out of one of these guys, you know, King or Schmidt or Montgomery uh, really – was to to pop who do you think the yankees would ideally like to see the most and who who do you think is ready for just a a regular rotation role i think loisica is the guy who they might look at first simply because he's got some major league time under his belt honestly he's looking i thought sessa was an option but Mm -hmm. boone has said he likes sessa coming out of the bullpen so i thought if you were looking to buy yourself six weeks to get to mid-May until Paxton comes back. I thought Sessa might be the guy who said, go out there five, six times, give us five innings. But Boone is on the record as saying he prefers him in the bullpen. That's why I think it's Loisica. Now, King or Schmidt could do something in spring training that would that would change that. But you start talking about which, which one of those guys, who's on the 40-man roster. I think the guys who – I think they'd like to see King and Schmidt and Davey Garcia, I left him out. Right, I think Garcia. they'd like to see those guys get some more seasoning at AAA before throwing them in at the major league level. At least, at least Loisica has done it. And with that bullpen, if, if you can play it right and spot when he starts and perhaps not use the bullpen a lot the day before, I mean, maybe on the days where you're starting Loisica, you don't even need five. Now, I know that they're, they're going to tax their bullpen early if they do this, but if you go four from Loisica two from green and then you're already to the seventh inning with Britain, Ottavino and Chapman. Sure. Maybe that's the way they have to manage it until they get some of these other guys back. That makes sense. So we have a question coming in from a buddy. I'm going to call him out. He hasn't been called Cooter since the nineties, but I don't like using his real name. <laughs> He's a good, uh, a good friend and a listener of the tune up. He had two specific Yankees roster questions. I wanted to ask for him, which was, uh, Will we see much of Clint Frazier this year? And will he be on the opening day? And who do you think is the uh, opening day third baseman? I'll answer the second one first. I definitely think Urshela is the starting third baseman. Yeah. I think it. I think it's his job to lose, and I just don't think he's going to do anything in spring to lose it. 
I think they've made it pretty obvious that they want Andujar on the roster, sure. and they should, and they should get that bat in the lineup, but it's they have to figure out a way to get him some at-bats. I'm not saying Andujar will play seven straight games at third. I'm sorry, Arshella. Maybe Andujar gets a game or two at third, a game or two at DH. What does he do in left field? Can he handle first base? So I think Urshela absolutely is the starting third baseman. I think Clint Frazier is a very interesting pitcher for them. I'm a pitcher. He's a very interesting player for them. I had a long conversation with him the other day. Much calmer mm. and more relaxed than he's been in recent years. Told me about some of the hitting adjustments that he has made at the plate and how he thinks that will help him. But to his credit, we talked about hitting for about 10 minutes. And then without any prompting from me, he said, but the hitting's not the problem. I got to show them that I can play defense. And that's, oh, wow. that's something I need to do this spring. With the 26-man roster, as I've tried to sort of figure out what they're going to do, I think Frazier's on the outside looking in right now. Mm-hmm. I think a guy like Wade, who can play the infield and the outfield, yeah and who especially can back you up at shortstop. You need right. somebody to back up Claver Torres. They don't have that person on the roster if Wade's not on there. I think they I think they think Wade's a better backup shortstop than Tyro Estrada. So I'm not sure if Frazier breaks camp with the Yankees. I would say that the odds are no right now, but guys, we saw how many players they used last year. Mm-hmm. Frazier could very easily work his way into the mix very quickly. Okay. Now, in spring training, has there been any guys that surprise you that may not make the opening day roster, but you could definitely see down the line, you know, they get sent down the AAA and they come back later in the year? Denny, you try not. Here's the thing I was told a long time ago by a veteran baseball man. He said, don't get fooled by what you see in February or March <laughs> or in September. But with that being said, based on what I saw in a couple of side sessions in a simulated game, Davey Garcia looks like the real deal. I mean, this kid's stuff, the fastball slider combination, he's he's small. He, I can see why they call him Little Pedro. You watch him pitch, and he's he's kind of got a, a Pedro way about him. I like the way he hides the ball. I like his confidence. He's 20 years old. He's yeah. up there facing major league hitters in a simulated game, and the Yankees got the camera on him from behind. And of course, they have all high-speed cameras in these games now, and they're, they're following these guys. and. He looks, he looks very comfortable. I think he needs to conquer AAA. Cashman doesn't usually like to go baptism by fire. He, he normally wants these guys right. to succeed at one level before they get brought up to the next level. But I absolutely think that, that Garcia is the real deal. Well, that's exciting again. <laughs> I mean, no, it's not. Um, so I didn't want—I didn't want to talk about this too much because I do feel like it's like super well-worn territory, and you know, obviously, it's been all anybody can talk about for a couple months now but with the cheating stuff there's something with the Astros and Major League Baseball that I found particularly interesting I want to talk about and I've heard that with the the strength of the players union and how historically players were so tight-lipped during the steroid controversy that the the actual story of what happened and the truth of what happened never would have really seen the light of day or been told in full if Major League Baseball didn't offer the players impunity, and that's the reason they still can't be punished. Um, do you think there's any truth to that? Well, put it this way. It was two years, right? And it took 
one player coming out and saying something to the athletic, Mike Fires. Right. So the secret was under wraps for two years. Mm-hmm. There were rumors. There was speculation. Carlos Beltran worked for the Yankees last year, and Brian <laughs> yeah. Cashman said he asked him about what the Astros did or, or may have done, and he said he never got a concrete answer from Beltran. So I do agree that giving immunity to the players allowed Major League Baseball to get the actual story or as close to the truth as they could get. With that being said, when, when they first doled out those penalties, I went on our shows and said, I, I thought that the penalties were fair. Uh, general manager gone for a year, manager gone for a year, $5 million fine. Uh, you lose four draft picks in the next couple of years. I understood them not penalizing the players, but I was wrong. Yeah, <laughs> Seeing the reaction right. from the other players, MLB, even if it would have been met with a grievance by the Players Association, they probably had to figure out a way that some of the players from 2017 had to pay a little bit because that plus the lack of contrition from the Astros is what has caused this player outrage. Mike Trout, Bellinger, Aaron Judge, go up and down the list of of the elite players in Major League Baseball who have, have criticized the Astros and you didn't see that during steroids. I know from yeah. trying to talk to players at that time, they didn't want to talk about someone who used steroids. It was, right. it was that that was an the S question was not something that was bandied about a lot in clubhouses. Now it's almost been okay. Who's stepping up to the mic next it's to to rip the Astros? Yeah, That's how angry right. the players are. So, so that being said, um, it seems as though a lot of people kind of had a, a similar. I mean, even I had a similar take as you, where I'm like. When those first penalties came down, I was like, wow, that seems unprecedented. That seems pretty harsh. So I think it's good. But then when you heard the backlash, um, and obviously that's made it a, a continuing story that's going through spring training and into the year. Um, do you think baseball is going to add any kind of punishments, asterisks, or anything to to recognize the, the vitriol of, of the people who have been talking about it? It's a great question. Joel Sherman of the New York Post, good friend of mine, he, he did a column maybe a week or 10 days ago. He made some suggestions of things Major League Baseball could do, some some additional penalties. It was it was things along the line of anybody who played for the 2017 Astros can't be on the All-Star team for the next three years. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who played for the 2017 Astros can never, actually like this one, can never, ever for the rest of their career, share in a postseason share. They could win five more World Series, but they're not going to make a dime off that postseason. Interesting. So there are things that MLB can do. I just get the hunch, guys, from from reading interviews that Manfred has done and or seeing interviews that he has done that I don't know that they're going to do that. At, at the time the the penalty came out, we were having a show at Yes, and one of our researchers, I'll, I'll, give him, I'll give him some props, a guy named Seth Rothman said, they should have banned them from the postseason in 2020 like they yeah. do in the NCAA. Sure. And it, when he said that, I thought, wow, I hadn't thought about that, but that's actually a really good idea. And guys, I think if they had done that, if there had been a tangible on-the-field penalty, sure. I don't think you would have heard all the squawking. Hinch and Lou now, that's tangible too, but someone's got their jobs. Yeah. The draft picks, sure, but okay. So yeah, they'll, and they'll Hinch, draft in the third, third gonna, round instead. And if I'm not mistaken, Hinch is going to get a job the second he's eligible to get a job, mm. no? I, I wonder about that. 
I, I'm going to hold out. I'm going to hold out on saying that okay. so so quickly. The backlash from this has made me wonder about that. Right. When it right. happened, I agree with you, and I still think the same thing potentially about Cora. Whenever he gets whatever right. punishment sure. he's getting, but then I also started to wonder, man, this this took on such a volatile nature. Does a team really want to add so and so who has this on his resume? I, I guess we'll find out. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I guess the Mets are an indication that that uh, even a team not involved with it at all would would just like to get away from it in any way, you know, relieving a manager who never even uh, managed the game for the Mets. I, I mean, at this point, I you know, I'm as as a fan and someone who just follows it really closely, I'm getting to that point where if there are no more penalties, in a strange way, I want the Astros to play so well the first month to almost be like, yes, we cheated, but maybe fortunately the cheating maybe didn't help that much. Like that's the only thing I can hope for right now as a baseball fan is the idea that them banging on trash cans just wasn't that significant. That the the fact that they were doing it is obviously real. The fact that they've had very little contrition and clearly don't feel very bad about it seems very real. But this other side of it that I'm just really hoping as a baseball fan for the purity of baseball moving forward that some of these guys really ball the first couple months to just be like, hey, Listen, we did do that, but we are actually these players. I'm actually Alex Bregman. I'm actually Jose Altuve. I right. actually know how to play baseball. I, I that, don't that you, want to see that. That makes you a very, I would say that makes you a very nice fan because <laughs> the reaction I've got is the opposite. I think a lot of fans want to just see them fall on their face and yeah. want to see them have a 2020 that is embarrassing and that they, they never have a chance and they fall out of it and, and then people who already are casting aspersions and are already have that cheater tag hanging over their head. They, they want that to hang there forever. And we'll see what happens. The one thing I will say, and I especially know this from working on this book with Cone, he was such a technician about one pitch can change a game. Mm. And that's the thing I thought about with the Astros. Sure. If you knew in the second inning that this guy was about to throw a fastball and, and you hit a three-run homer, that could have won that game in, oh, yeah. in April, and, sure. and that could have been the difference between you making the playoffs and another team not making the playoffs. So, yeah, yeah. though I agree with you that, I mean, Correa, Bregman, Guriel, I mean, these guys are these guys are terrific players. I, I think the cheating was I think the cheating was a had a significant impact, not just a minor impact, a significant impact. Listen, I I gotta. I got to do whatever I can to keep rooting for a guy named the Hebrew Hammer. We don't have too many, Jack. There's only a couple guys out there, you know? I hear you. You've seen Airplane, the the pamphlet on famous Jewish athletes. Uh, (laughs) uh, I actually, just to get away from this, because it's no fun, um, I I wanted to ask you, bringing it back to, to Cone, and, you know, I know it's interesting... You've worked with Jeter very intimately on his his book, Cone very intimately on his book, What's it like? How do you like uh, unobtrusively enter someone's life? You know, where I know like you cover their athletic careers, which are one thing, you know, you can see it. We all have access to the stats. We all have access to the videos. But how do you get your nose in there in a way unobtrusively that makes somebody want to open up but also feel safe to do it? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. I think if you're talking about those two individuals, you have to point out the times, the times in their lives when I when I did the book. Mm. Jeter, I believe, was 26, three or four years into his career when we worked on the book, The Life You Imagine. So his his life was at a much different stage than Cone, who when we just did the book was about 56. Right. He, his career has been over for more than 10 years. We've worked together at Yes for several years, and I knew him beforehand as a sports writer covering an athlete. So I would say that with Cone, it was, I don't want to say it was easy. I guess I will say it was easier. It was just easier to get him and schedule an interview, and let's do it here. With Jeter playing during the season, trying to find time, it was a little more of scheduling things and maybe sometimes even going through his agent. And sometimes you have to be a pest in right. both situations. I'm the guy facing the deadline. Their name is on the book, but the editor's <laughs> right. not going to come knocking on David Cohn's door or text him or Jeter. Back then, I don't even think we were texting at that point. So there were times in both situations where I had to say to both players, hey, I need you. I need you today, and I need you for an hour, or I need you for two hours, or, or this isn't going to get done if you don't call me back within <laughs> right. the next two or three days. And I think if they have respect for you, which by virtue of the fact that they agreed to do a book with you, if they hear that urgency in your voice, they, they should respond. And of course, in, in these situations, both of them did. They were, they were both a lot, of, uh, a lot of fun to work with on those books and made me better at the job I was doing at the time. Sports writer, when I was with the, did the book with Derek, and then obviously a sports announcer now when I did the book with Coney. Were there any things that got cut from the book that you wanted to keep in? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> with Cone, every time Cone told me a story or we talked about a pitching anecdote and it involved another pitcher, I thought you could make our book stand out a little more by reaching out to that pitcher. So I interviewed Greg Maddox, Tom Glavin, CC Sabathia, Mariano Rivera, Andy Pettit, David Wells, uh, R.A. Dickey, um, Mark Gubiza. There's probably another dozen pitchers that I interviewed. Well, one of them was Oral Hershiser, and Cone loved Hershiser's two-seam fastball, which uh, he called him a pioneer of that pitch, a pitch that, as a right-handed bat, a pitcher, he's going to throw it at a left-handed batter's hip, and then it's going to bend into the strike zone at the last minute. And Greg Maddox took that pitch from Hershiser and went to the Hall of Fame with it. <laughs> well, I spoke to Oral Hershiser for about 45 minutes. He talked a lot about Cone. He talked a lot about that pitch. And we, we just couldn't fit it anywhere. It just didn't fit into what we were trying to do. I thought at the time that David loved that pitch so much that we'd figure out a way to, to fit it into the book. But here was the problem, guys. Cone didn't throw a two-seamer. Or if he threw it, he threw it just for show. Uh, so every time I tried to <laughs> find a spot to put this, that whole section in there, it never fit. Huh. So after the fact, when the book came out, I, I sent Oral Hershiser. I emailed him the whole section. I said, this was going to be your contribution to the book. <laughs> I, I feel bad that it never made it. And Hershiser, I don't think, was that upset because even as he was doing the interview with me, he said, listen, I want to write my own book someday, so yeah. I'm going to be helpful to you, and I, I respect David, so I want to answer your questions, but you might be getting half a cup from me, not a full cup. And I said, okay, well, maybe with that. Maybe you, got the, maybe you got the oral book from it. <laughs> well, he, he, his book, if he ever does it, 
will be very good because in the course of writing the David book, he asked me a few questions and said, so what are your chapters and what are you doing? And I told him a few things and he told me five things I should ask David. And oh, I wow. said, yeah, you know what? I didn't even, because he, he speaks that language. Right. When he, sure. um, when he releases his slider, where, where, where is his, uh, where is his back leg at that point? And as he follows through, how much is his arm whipping through? Does his arm whip through so much that it comes back and almost hits his leg? And I'm, I'm like, Oral, you're, I'm still in pitching one on one. You, you, you have a PhD here right now. <laughs> well, we got to wrap up pretty soon. But there's one thing I needed to talk to you about because this is crucial. We've been doing this for years. So when I first met you, you know, you had told me that you were a little intimidated by Bob Lorenz's suits. You know, he was coming with the, the pocket squares, the really, you know, the nice getups. You said, I, I came from a different world and my suit game wasn't as strong. And as the years have gone on, and I've hit you up a lot about this, you know that. I'll see you on TV and be like, hey, Jack, I like that pink tie. You're going for it a little more. So have you? I know you've made an active effort to up your suit game to, to try to keep up with Bob Lorenz. Do you feel like... I feel like you might have finally leveled the playing field. And, and what have you learned about fine suits through these years? <laughs> I, I appreciate you saying that because you're right. I mean, I, I'm not saying when I was a sports writer, I, I dressed like a slob. I would try to go to the ballpark and, and look neat and look sure. presentable. I never wanted to be the guy who had uh, wore a pair of jeans that looked like he just cleaned his garage in. <laughs> but when you get on TV, it's, it's a different animal. And I, I will tell you guys this, if you are on TV and your tie is crooked or your pocket square doesn't match or something doesn't look right, you could announce that Derek Jeter was coming out of retirement <laughs> and he was – and forget the Hall of Fame. And, and he's, not, he's not only coming out of retirement, he wants to pitch this time. And nobody is listening because they're looking at that crooked tie. So, yes, <laughs> it, it definitely was something. And, and Bob's a role model in a lot of ways. First of all, I think Bob – Kids are born with rattles. You know, they put a rattle in the crib. Bob's yeah. family put a microphone in the crib because <laughs> he was born to be on TV. And he was a good guy to follow in the wardrobe area and also just ask some questions to. Sure. Because you want to you, you wanna look the part. And I, I think there's an importance to, uh, to looking the part, Benny. So I appreciate you noticing. <laughs> <laughs> Every time. One last baseball question from us. Uh, you know, we always like to wrap up when we talk to people about long-term predictions. Uh, we get to October, November, World Series. Who you got? I'm gonna, I'm gonna probably go with the chalk. I'd probably say Yankees, Dodgers. I, like I, I think that the, uh, I think the Severino loss is a hit. But if you're, if you're being a Yankee glass half full kind of person, they won 103 games last year and didn't have Severino. Right. They, they do have Cole this year, so that, that means Tanaka's got to have a big season. That means Paxton and Herman have to come back and be contributors. I think Hap has to be the second half Hap, but I look at those two teams, like I said, even with no Severino, I look at those two teams as, as standing out, and there would almost be a little, a little justice in that, especially, yeah. especially for the Dodgers, but, but both of these teams have sort of been victimized by the Astros cheating from 17. So I think there would be some justice in 2020 if they're the two teams left standing. You know, what about Rob, you guys? You, you guys got a prediction? It's hard to go away from the one you just yeah. said. Um, you know, before you see the, the teams get out there, I think there's some surprises and some teams that are going to sneak up. And uh, I'm 
scared of Tampa as usual. I yeah. think they're a terrifying little team. But yeah, on paper, I'm I'm still with Yankees Dodgers. And I know I'm a conspiracy theorist. Danny yells at me a lot, <laughs> but you know I think Rob Manfred and Major League Baseball will do everything they can do to ensure the fact that it's a Yankees Dodgers World Series. A makeup this year. call. Yeah. <laughs> well, it would be it would be baseball Nirvana for yeah. a lot of people. Exactly. And, um, uh, I mean, the, the two of the most storied franchises in baseball. And as you said earlier about the cheating, it, it's going to hover over the uh, season. It's going to hover over the Astros franchise forever. But there does come a certain point. You want to talk about the game. Exactly. You, you want to talk about the action on the field. I'm sure you guys would rather hear me talk about Davey Garcia's slider than talking about the Astros and cheating. And I was in spring training for two weeks, did a bunch of the cheating talk. And I'm very happy that they're playing games now because you get the focus on on what's going on in the field. He is Jack Curry. Catch him on Yes Network. JCTV is awesome if you haven't checked that out. Also, the book is full count. And on Twitter, he is at Jack Curry. Yes. Jack, thank you so much for your time today. Danny, Danny, I loved it. Have me on anytime you want. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Thank you so much to Jack Curry again. Benny, that was phenomenal. So much fun. So much fun. Only, only, I mean, I have so many questions. I asked <laughs> almost all of them. Almost all of them. Well, we've got to have him back on because, yeah. you know, the season's heating up. Uh, the Yankees are going to be in the thick of things. And well, we got to dig a little deeper into what he was talking about, about drum analytics. Right. This is something I, I really need to, to yeah, explore. Yeah, exactly. Support the people that support us. Pick up Full Count. It's a great book. And, I mean, he gave you a, a little taste of what wasn't in there, so you can imagine what actually did make the final cut. But plenty of ways to get in contact with this show. You can email us at thetuneuppodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us and DM us on Twitter, Instagram, at thetuneuphq. You can follow him, him being Benny, on Twitter, at Benny Horowitz one And you can follow him. Oh, my gosh, I almost forgot it. Number one in your minds, number one in your hearts, number one on Twitter. That's right. You can follow me on Twitter at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, you got anything else? Just enjoy your march. Everybody love everybody. And baseball's back. Thank God. This has been the Tune-Up. <laughs>